today it is Palm Sunday, as you know, so we will um, take one week to address that from a different passage than Luke. We'll get to Luke in time. I didn't want to skip that far ahead and then come back. So we're going to look at the Matthew account this evening, Matthew 21. Now, I will tell you truth in advertising. It won't be the normal textual approach to this passage. We'll read the passage, and then I want to touch on a particular topic. You can see that on the insert. Um, I don't do topical sermons much, um, but this is my favorite topic in Scripture. It's the one that I come back to the most personally. It's the one that I'll find any which way to try to address. Um, I was thinking as Dr. R.C. Sproul passed away here recently, I used to laugh at his conferences because it really didn't matter what the name of the conference was. It always came back to the sovereignty of God somehow, which was great. Um, In in a way, whenever I do get a topical, I just warn you, it's going to be about the finished work of Christ. No apologies. Um, Because this is the basis for the sacrifice that Jesus presents himself to give on Palm Sunday. Um, The big thematic push of Palm Sunday is Christ presenting himself in Jerusalem to fulfill all that prophecy so that he would be the sacrifice. His finished work is summed up in his sacrificial act. Of course, it's verified when he's raised again, but it's his finished work on the cross that gives us salvation. It's my favorite topic in Scripture. It's personally the most rewarding devotional thought that I have is the finished work of Jesus, and I want you to hopefully sense that a bit for yourself if you don't already. I hope you already do. Um, as we look at this passage, or before I read it, keep in mind how important uh, the events of the last week of Jesus' earthly life before he goes to the cross, how important they are to um, the New Testament record. One commentator uh, characterizes it this way. The events of this final week before Christ's resurrection are filled with miracles, confrontation, teaching, and fulfillment of prophecy like no other period in Christ's earthly ministry. We would do well to take notice, especially of this week, this one commentator says. And I've noted this before. Um, If you think of Jesus' three years of public ministry, that's 156 weeks. Uh, One week only makes up about a percent of that, right? Not even. Half a percent, maybe. And yet, in the New Testament, um, the, the, the least amount of time one of the Gospels spends is 23% of the time addressing the last week. Eight out of 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew is devoted to this last week. That's 30% of the Gospel to this last week. Um, six out of 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. That's 37% of Mark focuses on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Five and a half out of 24 chapters of Luke are devoted to this final week of Christ's sacrifice. That's 23%. That's the least of them. But then remember, uh, Luke writes Acts. So the whole book of Acts is about uh, Jesus rising and then after, after the effects of his rising. 11 out of 21 chapters in the Gospel of John are devoted to this final week. That's 52% of the Gospel of John, which makes sense. Why is John written? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. So he spends half the time focused on the finished work of Christ or that which is around the finished work of Jesus. Now, with that preface, let's hear God's word read as I read it. Uh, this is Matthew 21, 1 through 11, one of the several accounts of, the, of what's called Palm Sunday or Jesus' triumphal entry. And this is God's inerrant and inspired word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, 
go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we begin a week of special contemplation about our Lord's sacrifice for our sins. Please give us a depth of insight, maybe that we haven't previously had. Please shore up our confidence in the finished work of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Now, from the beginning of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, you will recall sacrifices being offered. The most vivid one happens when Abraham is told to sacrifice his son. And that is a picture of Jesus to be sacrificed. Of course, the difference being is the father doesn't hold back the knife in that case. In that case, he does have his son sacrifice Jesus. So the Bible is laden with the theme of sacrifice. And I I stress this because if you listen to wider Christianity, that which calls itself Christianity, it seems to get further and further away from addressing the reality of sacrifice that is needed for our sins. This is a major problem because that's the core of our salvation. Without the sacrifice, there is no forgiveness for sins, and we're still dead in our sins. Now, of course, the deeper problem is uh, many of those churches don't believe we have that sin problem any longer. It kind of paints a picture of this, this panacea of, of we're all just really good at heart, not what the Scripture says at all. But you really have to get away from the Bible to get away from sacrifice. And the last picture in the book of Revelation, worthy is a lamb who was slain. So there's a picture of sacrifice at the very beginning of Scripture, forecasted, shown in Abraham, and then finally, worthy is a lamb who is slain. Now, it's interesting that the timing would be as it is. Um, This is at Passover, when we come to the triumphal entry. Passover happens every year at the same time. And interestingly, the lambs would have been brought for sacrifice four days before the actual sacrifice. So Jesus would be coming into Jerusalem at just the same time people would be bringing their lambs in. The lambs would be raised in some of the outer towns like Bethphage or Bethany, Bethlehem is known to have stables where many lambs were raised. In fact, there, some commentators note that there was a sheep gate in the wall of Jerusalem for people to bring in their lambs. It could have been coming from Bethlehem. So they've been raised. Why four days? Why four days before? Because the sheep would be brought into pens around the temple area. People would be traveling from all over the place. Uh, they wouldn't bring their, their lambs with them always. They couldn't. They were coming from too far. So they would buy their lambs from those places that raised them closer. And then when they bought them, they had to wait to make sure that they were okay, that they weren't crippled in some way, that they really were spotless lambs. 
After a couple days, they'd see if they were sick. Four days gave the person who was offering that sacrifice uh, a surety that it was a, a spotless lamb. And so this would be the exact time that Jesus is also coming into Jerusalem when those lambs are being brought in. Yet he is the final Passover lamb. That's the beauty of the picture that we have before us. Why so much attention and focus in the Gospels, Matthew included, on this week of Christ's passion which begins with him coming as the sacrifice at the same time as the other sacrificial lambs? Very, very simply, and this is what I want to stress to you, a right view of Christ's sacrifice, what he was going to do, what he has done, a right view of Christ's sacrifice for our sins is what promotes spiritual health and maturity. God applies salvation by giving us faith in Christ. He unites us to Christ by this. But the thing that we want to contemplate is what purchased that union with Christ, that right standing with God in its Christ sacrifice. So rightly understanding the sacrifice, um, the fact that we need it, it's necessary, the fact that it has to be central in our ongoing walk. It's not just what saves us initially, it's what continues to grow us spiritually. That has to be a marker for a church and for people who say they're believers. It must be central. The sacrifice of Jesus, the finished work of Christ, as you'll hear me say it, has to be central in our lives going forward. In fact, this is what will promote ongoing spiritual maturity into the future. I put it to you this way, and I've, I've written this down a million different ways, and I say it this way. When I rely, and when you re- this is true for you too, when you rely on your ability to exercise faith in God, just to, I believe in God, I believe in God, when you think like that, or when we have some kind of um, trust in our ability to obey or that we show some signs of obedience, I don't mean to say that we think we're perfect at all or even close, but when we're relying on our trust in God or our ability to obey, that leads to terrible insecurity. Terrible insecurity. But when you're trusting in the finished work of Christ, now there's a taste of God's contentment and glory. Because it's not on my ability to believe in God or my ability to do some good things. It's on what Jesus has accomplished, what his merit has already purchased for us. Now, the beauty of this is when we rest there, we actually start to see victory over sin. We actually see obedience in our lives because we're rooted in the finished work of Christ. The thing that frees us, the thing that makes us right with God is the same thing that helps us stay secure and grow in God's grace. It's a beautiful, beautiful dynamic that God has has allowed or has caused to be true for his children. Now, I want us to first be reminded that we are in need of this sacrifice. I just keep talking about the sacrifice, but it is something that's necessary. We have to see that and believe that. It's, just, it's not just an example of someone who died for something, like a martyr, or an example for us. It's not that. It's way more personal than that. It's, it's, it's a finished work on our behalf. God looked at it and saw us connected to it. It's that particular A sacrifice, in particular, is an offering or a gift given to God to remove the guilt of sin. That's what a sacrifice is. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people brought sacrifices. It comes down to this. Sin has entered, and thus God's holiness is offended. When Adam and Eve fell, God's holiness is offended. There cannot be union with man and God any longer. In our unholiness... 
we are estranged from God's presence. And it's pictured in the garden when they try to hide from God. They know they can't stand in his presence. Furthermore, God can't just let it go. He has to judge that unholiness. He has to come down on that unholiness lest it corrupt him in his justice. There's only one way out of our sinful predicament. God must be willing to accept a substitute sacrifice for us. Even if we were just to die as a judgment, they wouldn't pay for our sins. It'd be what we deserve, but it wouldn't get us in good standing. So we need a substitute, and the substitute has to be sinless. There has to be a willing substitute. God has to be willing to give the sacrifice, and that sacrifice has to agree to be the sacrifice. Jesus is that substitute, as you know. He is worthy to be the sacrifice that God accepts. Now, I want you to consider for a moment the theme of sacrifice to recognize how integrated it is in Scripture. And all of you, if you think uh, hard enough, you'll, you'll be able to walk through what you know of the Bible, I'm sure, and you can see how vivid the picture is. Of course, the fall itself I just mentioned, um, right on the heels of it, Jesus is forecasted when God says to the devil who caused the fall that I'm going to put enmity between you and your seed and the woman, the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And you're going to bruise his heel. That's the first picture of sacrifice. There will be harm done to the seed en route to crushing Satan and undoing what he did. So right from the get-go, you have this picture. And of course, even prior to, or, or right in conjunction with that, God kills these animals to then cover the naked man and the naked woman who now recognizes they didn't know it before now they know it so there's sacrifice that happens right from the beginning why is this important it reminds us of the seriousness of sin we can't avoid that reality then of course early on in the book of genesis cain and abel come along and certainly eve probably thinks that cain is the chosen one she i behold i have begotten a man she says maybe she thinks he's the seed Whatever the case, these two end up at odds, and Cain kills Abel. Um, and you remember, it was on the basis of these sacrifices that they were making. There's no indication about God instructing on sac- sacrifices, but you have Cain and Abel offering, making offerings to God. Later in Abraham, he's giving sacrifices too, before we are given any indication of particular instruction about sacrifices. And of course, the biggest sacrifice is him offering his only son, just as God had told him. Of course, by the time we get to Moses, there's a varied and complex system of sacrifices. Yet now it's very, it's very clear what this is supposed to picture. It's supposed to picture the coming Christ. And there's all sorts of kinds of sacrifices that have to be made. But the Day of Atonement outlined in Leviticus really lays out the picture of the coming Messiah. There's no way to hide the need for sacrifice in the seriousness of it, the awfulness of sacrifice, the bloodiness of it. Of course, Isaiah 53, the picture of Jesus making himself the sacrifice, taking on our sin, being our substitute. John the Baptist sees Jesus, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Later, Paul writes of Christ. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Lorraine Bettner is a, is a, was no longer alive now, but was a commentator and a theologian. And he writes this when referring to the use of a lamb to picture Christ. This helps us appreciate sacrifice. 
in appointing the lamb as the principal animal for the morning and evening sacrifice in ancient Israel, God shows the animal, which is at once, at one and the same time, the most harmless and gentle and the most attractive and pleasing of all the domestic animals, and thus emphasize both the innocence and the inherent value of the victim whose life was taken. The people were thus taught that their sins were forgiven and their lives spared only because another, who was innocent and virtuous, took their place and died in their stead. It's a beautiful picture of what sacrifice is and why it's necessary. In the book of Hebrews, unknown author, this apostolic author writes about Jesus. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, speaking of Christ. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. So it's important for us to see the need for sacrifice, acknowledge our sins require payment, and to acknowledge that Christ is the righteous one to make this payment for us. I don't believe it's right for us to think, okay, that's settled and we go on with the Christian life. No, that's the heart of the Christian life ongoing is the finished work of Christ. It never stops being this. In fact, when I talk to folks about whether you're a Christian or not, I really look to hear, I want to hear from them a statement about Christ paying for their sins. Christ is my Savior, it's fine. Because it implies that a lot of times people will give you these long answers, these doctrinal answers that come from the Westminster, from the Heidelberg. Those are good answers. Like what we read today, that's phenomenal. I mean, I would have read all the sections, but it would have gone long. You know, section one and two is fine out of that chapter. But very simply, do you rest in the finished work of Christ? That, determined, that, that tells whether you're a Christian or not. Because a Christian is resting in Christ's work. A Christian is not saying... Um, I'm really doing my best to be at church as much as I can, or I'm being faithful in this, or I'm, my parents did this, or I was baptized and these things, all of which have parts to play in our walk. But our actual being in Christ comes down to the work of Christ finished in our behalf. A right view of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, this promotes spiritual vitality and maturity. We need Christ's sacrifice because of sin. But next, I want you to notice something else. This seems like a complex statement, but I want you to bear with me and think about this. The centrality or the importance of what I'm saying, the sacrifice of Jesus, the way you personally describe that, as I just started to get at, and the way we as a church prioritize that central teaching of Scripture, that indicates, without question, what our spiritual health is like, And that's not just meant corporately, it's meant individually too. What Jesus' sacrifice means really states where we are spiritually, where our health is as a person and as a church, unlike any other doctrine, I believe. Now, let me give you an example. You have your Bibles. Turn to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1 in the Old Testament, one of the last books. Okay, Malachi is addressing a situation that's happening among God's people. Now, in the Old Testament... It's true, Jesus had not come yet, so they're looking ahead to the sacrifice that he will make. So the centrality of Christ's sacrifice for the Old Testament believer would be 
uh, characterized by how they carry out the sacrifices. If they understand the gospel correctly in the Old Testament, they'll understand that that sacrificial system and the sacrificial practice is meant to be a statement of faith about God taking away their sins through the Messiah who will yet to be yet to come. They don't know the details like we have them, but they know they're looking ahead to this. So you come to Malachi, and there's all sorts of problems with Malachi. Of course, pastors like to quote uh, the part about people not tithing in Malachi, and that's a good one. Uh, but the one that comes before that, that he really confronts, I want you to hear. Malachi 1, starting at verse 6. Remember that the prophet is addressing the people of God in their, their weak spiritual state. The text says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, this is God speaking through the mouth of the prophet, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. So now he's talking to those who are supposed to be carrying out the sacrificial system, the priests. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? So clearly, God's upset with the priests who are supposed to be helping the people to know the gospel through the sacrificial system. And he's saying that they're disrespecting, they're despising. And they're saying, wait a minute, how can you say this? Notice verse 7. By offering polluted food on my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So they're going through the, the, they're going through the motions without being careful about what they're bringing to the Lord. Now look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Do you see what's happening? They're not taking seriously the sacrificial system, which is to bring pure animals. Why? This picture is what is required for the forgiveness of their sins. They're not taking it seriously. Um, they're, they're thinking it's not that important. We'll take the good stuff for ourselves. We've got some lame stuff that we won't eat. Let's give that to God. The governor wouldn't even take that, is what he's suggesting here. Verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor, any, show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Here's the point. We can only come to God through Christ, the perfect sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they were being rejected because they did not think they needed a perfect sacrifice. Really, they didn't think they really needed Christ. That's what they're saying by what they're doing. The centrality of our view of the Lord Jesus' sacrifice is the indicator of our spiritual health, personally and corporately as a church. One commentator says this about the sacrifices they were offering in the book of Malachi. What was taking place was the ultimate contradiction in worship. Israel was offering non-sacrificial sacrifices. They were offering to God as sacrifices the things which they did not want themselves. Sacrifice is the giving up of something we genuinely value in order to express devotion and appreciation for God. But sacrificing of diseased animals was like offering someone a birthday present, the contents of our dustbin. Such a low view of what the sacrifice pictured tells us what their spiritual health was like. 
like, and that's why Malachi was called into ministry, is to call them back and to repent. They were missing the point of those sacrifices. They represented Christ, and they should have been done with the highest level of consideration. Understanding the place of Jesus' finished work is really the litmus in many respects for one's salvation and ongoing growth and grace. Matthew 16. Listen to what it says there. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So listen to what's happening. You know this passage in Matthew 16. Peter hears him talking about he's going to have to die. Peter says, you can't do that. Don't talk like that, Lord. Far be it. And he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now notice what Jesus does with Peter. This shows us how important, how central this doctrine of his sacrifice, of his finished work is. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter is rebuked by his beloved Lord because he is telling Jesus to not go finish the work, to not give himself as a sacrifice. And the reaction from Christ is stark and immediate. He speaks as though it's Satan speaking, because who is the one who will be crushed at the cross? Satan. Only Satan would say, no, Lord, don't die. The centrality of Christ's sacrifice is always an indicator of our spiritual health, and that's true uh, as individuals as well as a church. And think about it in terms of a church. I think a surefire test for whether a church has lost its way has to do with the kind of place it gives to Christ's sacrifice. Um, does the church, do we regularly refer to the finished work of Christ? Or does the church um, make it out to simply uh, be an example? Is it that great that Jesus believed in his being kind to everybody to the point that he let people kill him? You'll hear that. People say that. It's just, he's just, it was a martyr for his particular cause for kindness. Does the church even go as far as to say is that Jesus didn't necessarily have to die for the forgiveness of sins? Any of these things are worthy questions to ask, and it is a good litmus, the centrality of Christ's sacrifice in the life and teaching of the church. And of course, that means in our lives as well. I want you to notice the final point coming from this theme of God's a sacrifice of Christ, of Jesus' finished work. The centrality of Jesus' sacrifice, um, it's something we're talking about in the now and what's happened in the past. I want you to see that it's something that will keep helping you in your walk. I alluded to it a little bit when I told you how much uh, this doctrine means to me personally, but think of several things. First of all, um, the benefits, we might call them, the benefits of clarity about the finished work of Jesus or his sacrifice. First of all, when we focus on the finished work of Christ, it promotes a humility because it says in believing in it that we can't offer the sacrifice that's necessary. It makes Christ preeminent. It makes us focus on him as the primary one. So the beauty is, the Bible tells us that Jesus, God, exalts those who are humble. He puts down the proud, but he exalts the humble. Well, how do I be humble? Focus on Christ and his finished work, and it will humble you. You will raise Jesus up, and that's how you actually receive a level of exaltation 
because we're in Christ. And it's not the kind of exaltation like you'd think. It's better than that. It's knowing our place is God's worshipers purchased by Christ. So it promotes a kind of humility when we focus on the finished work of Christ and recognize it properly. Also, this is what I would tell you in addition. With all rest on Christ's finished work and not rest on anything we offer, when it's all on Christ's finished work, there is found in that place actual security. It, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's not a paradox. It's just hard for us to imagine. How could this be? All my rest is on someone else's work, and yet I'm secure. Because if it's not on his work, you know how shaky you are, how shaky I am. But on his work and his testimony before us, we know how reliable he is. Analyzing, another way of putting it, analyzing the quality of Christ's work. The quality of Christ's sacrifice, which, by the way, you could do for the rest of your life and never get to the end of it. Keep studying Jesus, and you'll keep studying his quality. You'll see his excellence. And in his excellence, we have an increase in our security. The more we see him excellent, the more stable we become. The more great we see him to be, uh, the more firm we become. Um, the less shaky we become. Our shakiness comes from trust in self. Not a, it's never because of Christ. You cannot rely upon Christ too much. You cannot focus upon Christ too much. You can never wear out studying the excellencies of Jesus. That's the beauty of this thematic focus. With our security in Christ... We're then free to live with total abandon for God. Who cares if we die? Who cares what else happens if we're in Christ? Because we recognize something eternal that far outlasts these short years that we live. With that kind of concept, we're not nearly as tied to this world because we're secure in the finished work of Christ, which goes on to the world everlasting. It, not being tied to this world is one of the greatest gifts you could possibly ever have. Uh, because that's when actually things become joyous. That's when you actually enjoy this life uh, in a different way. And I don't mean happy, skipping around, and everything's just going well. I just mean that you'll have such a deep sense of purpose because you're resting in Christ and know that he's sovereign over every aspect of it. Now you can start to actually do things for the kingdom. And by the way, I don't mean go win everybody to Christ in another nation. I just mean be a good mother, a good father, a worker. It's just all of a sudden everything has, a, has an eternal meaning. Even if you think it's mundane or small, it's not any longer in Christ. Because that's what he's given for you to do and you recognize who you're doing it for and how secure you are in it. People who are secure in Christ's finished work are simply more effective for the kingdom. They're resting in the right thing and they're not judging their worthiness on what other people are doing. Their security is in Christ and they know that God does not love them for their service. God does not love them for how much they do. God loves them completely because of Christ and his finished work. Keeps going back to the finished work of Jesus, doesn't it? Now you know why I love this theme so much. The next topical sermon I do, whatever it is, will be on this. When I'm not worried about God rejecting me because he only accepts me for the finished work of Christ. If he accepts, accepts me for the finished work of Christ, how will he ever reject me? If I'm resting in Christ, he will never reject me. You say, I sin. Like, yeah, I know you do, but you're in Christ. And so he doesn't reject you because of that sin. And with that kind of appreciation for the grace of God, I don't want to sin as much. And guess when I do, what happens? He still loves me in Christ. I mean, it's utterly life-changing. I mean, nothing will change your life like this. Uh, this is what transforms. This is what Jerry Bridges said is transforming grace. What's the grace based on? It's based on the finished work of Christ. That's the point. 
That's the important feature of all of this. Like I said earlier, trusting in our belief or in our obedience leads to insecurity. Trusting in Christ's finished work leads to rest in him, which overcomes anxiety about eternity. I mean, think about this further. Clarity about Jesus' sacrifice, as I'm describing it, and its accomplishment. It means that there is an attending clarity about a bunch of other things. So even though I'm talking about the finished work of Jesus, what else does it give us clarity about when we focus on it? It gives us clarity about God's holiness, why we need the sacrifice. It gives us clarity and honesty about our sinfulness. We need the sacrifice. Um, It also reminds us what our sin deserves, that Jesus would die for my sins. And there's no amount of sins that you could commit that are so bad that the greatness of Christ's sacrifice cannot overcome it. Oh, I am the worst. Get over yourself. You're not nearly as bad as to overcome his grace. You can't be. There's nothing you can do to so undo your redeemability except for reject Christ. Uh, If you accept him, there's nothing you can do that his, his grace will not cover by his finished work. Clarity about Christ's sacrifice helps us also uh, constantly re- be reminded of what it required to be forgiven and what we need to be made right with God. And that's a beautiful grace that never stops. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian. The message of the finished work of Christ on our behalf never gets old to us. We just need to hear it often because sometimes we forget about it. And we get on our way and down the road and we think, you know what, I'm mature now. now okay, if you're mature now, then you're going to keep focusing on the finished work of Jesus. That's what maturity is. Real maturity never gets away from the finished work of Christ. The whole of the gospel is perceived when we rest in Christ's finished work. And what we have at the beginning of Holy Week is Jesus coming into Jerusalem and he is presenting himself as the sacrifice that had long been forecasted. Okay, so you're in Christ. What does that mean? What comes from this? Two passages I'll leave you with. One, Romans 12, verse 1. Listen to what it says. On the basis of the finished work of Christ, Paul's writing, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... That's how I know he's talking to people who are in Christ. By the mercies of God, to present yourself, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you want to pay back the sacrifice, you can't. But this is what you can do in response. Give yourself as a living sacrifice. Respond by laying yourself down for him. Holy and acceptable to God. That's covered in Christ. Which is your spiritual worship? Do not be conformed to this world. How do you not be conformed to this world? Do you know the answer to that? Focus on the finished work of Christ. That's how you won't be conformed to this world. It'll transform everything about the way you view this world. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Romans 12, 1. That's the first response. Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Here's another response. Through him, Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Coming to church is part of a beautiful grace that allows us to offer up corporately our our songs of praise, to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The finished work of Christ produces in us a gratefulness that makes us want to proclaim thanks to God. And that process, this process, invigorates you to focus more on the finished work of Christ as you start your week. The first day of the week, as it were. I know the world thinks of this as the last day of the weekend. No, it's the first day of the week. 
That's, that's where we're here for, is the first day of the week to get our priorities right again. And what is it on? It's on the finished work of Christ. And one of the beauties of communion every week is even if I mess up this message somehow, may God protect you, but we're going to come to the table and we're going to again remember the finished work of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I'll close with this. Very well. His death was not an accident. It was not a tragedy. It was not a martyr's death, nor was it something that might or might not have happened, and all would have been well. No, the New Testament makes it plain that it was something that was essential to man's salvation. And your salvation is not a one-point-in-time happening. Yes, it's true, we're born again, justified, I know that. But it's God's will that from that place we continue to grow in sanctification. And in a sense, our salvation is ongoing. It's his work, but he's doing the work. And the way we tap into that reality is by constantly focusing on the finished work of Christ. The sacrifice is brought on Palm Sunday And that's what we will focus on in particular this week, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and every Sunday, and every day. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the finished work of Christ. May we celebrate what has been purchased for us through Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.